It's good to be back with you. We weren't away. We were just sick. Uh, through through the, the entire years of the pandemic, not once did any of my family ever contract COVID-19. Uh, it seems like God waited for that two weeks ago. And so from our kids having it, and then when they got better, suddenly my wife and I had it, so we had to miss a couple of Sundays, but praise God, he's always faithful, that he is our strength, that he is our healer, and that uh, he has brought us here together to be with all of you. And sadly for me, this is my last Sunday with you for the next four months because my wife and I and our kids, we've got to go back to America. When we came back from America last year, there were many things that we left undone that we still have to, to complete. As far as me being a missionary with the Assemblies of God, there's still other trainings and other preaching and other things that we have to go through. And, and unfortunately, it's going to take four months or so to do that. And uh, we do get to see our daughter Rachel again. We get to be with our daughter Yaya as we're preparing her to, to stay there in Florida, working and living there with our other daughter as well. Um, so we're mixed with emotions. We're happy about reuniting our family again, but we're not happy about leaving all of you. And so we're going to just trust in God to take care of us, to take care of you, and when we come back in January, we're going to be better than we were before. Every one of us. We're going to be closer to each other, and we're going to be closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Also, if you've been following the news recently, I know that most of us that are here today, we don't know what it's like to come from a country that has a heritage and a rich history of having kings and queens reigning over uh, the people. Uh, but we do have some attachment to that today because of our brother David, uh, who is from England. And so we just want to express our prayers and, and greatest thoughts to uh, David and all of our brothers and sisters who are from the United Kingdom. Uh, we pray that God will be a great God of comfort for that nation. And to remember that Queen Elizabeth wasn't just a loyal queen to her country, she was also a mom and a grandmother and a great-grandmother. And so we know that there are many people who are hurting today in, in the UK, and we uh, pray for their comfort, and we also pray that God will anoint and raise up uh, the new king uh, to reign over his people. And we also pray, David, that your country will know in this time strength and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. So let's all remember uh, our brother David and his family and all of our citizens of, of England and beyond. Amen. May God keep his hand upon them and shine his face upon their country. If you have your Bibles with you today, because I missed two Sundays, and because this is my last Sunday for a while, I'm going to do something I don't normally do, and I'm going to do it as quickly as I can, which is saying something. But we're going to go through the entire chapter of Romans 8 today. We're not going to read the whole chapter in our beginning, and we're not going to go over every verse as I'm preaching the sermon. We're only going to concentrate on three areas of this chapter. But I do want to teach the entire message of Romans chapter 8 because I believe that this is perhaps the greatest chapter of comfort to every Christian. Now, I don't mean to elevate one part of God's Word above another, but Romans chapter 8 is filled with such great comfort for all of us who believe in Jesus, for all of us who trust in Him. And I hope and I pray today that you will see exactly what kind of comfort this is. So let's begin. We're going to read a few verses from chapter 8. So if you'll turn to that, please. Romans chapter 8. We'll begin right at verse 1. Today's sermon is entitled, In Christ. Today we're going to see what it means to be in Christ. Stand with me if you will. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And if you'll go towards the end of the chapter, 
Beginning at verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Again, the title of today's sermon message is In Christ. A wonderful chapter. As I've always said, I, I pray often at the beginning of the church service or even as I'm preparing a message during the week, I always pray two things because I don't know everybody's background today. I know most of you personally, but there are many of you that I also don't know very well. My prayer is always this, God, comfort every Christian in today's sanctuary. And number two, God, save every sinner that may be sitting in the sanctuary here at church. And I believe that Romans chapter 8, it will do exactly that if you will listen to it and you believe in what God says. All throughout this chapter, it is nothing but great comfort. And you know, it's no surprise to us. Jesus said to us when he was going back to heaven, he says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And he called the Holy Spirit a helper. He also called him the comforter. And Jesus said, he will be with you and he will be in you. And so it's no surprise today that this great chapter of comfort, Romans 8, the Holy Spirit is referred to more than 20 times in this chapter because he is our comforter. The Holy Spirit, he is the third person of the triune God. He is the power of God and he is the presence of God because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, in our innermost being. And so we say, God dwells in us. God's not just with us. He's also in us through the Holy Spirit. And today I want to show you what it means to be in Christ. Number one, it means there is no condemnation for us. Number two, to be in Christ means there is no desolation for us. And number three, to be in Christ means no separation. None forever. So let's begin with number one, no condemnation. And let's look at verse one again. Now in my New King James version of the Bible, it might be different than yours, but if you see it on the screen above me, it says again, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now this verse is actually a lot more simple than what I just read. Because in the New King James Version of this verse, it's an old translation, and for some reason, a phrase was added to this verse. The phrase that was added was, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That phrase belongs to verse 4. You find it there. But for whatever reason, in the process of translations, there were some manuscripts where somebody took the phrase out of verse 4 and put it here in verse 1. Why? Not so sure. It doesn't ruin the verse. It doesn't falsify the verse. But if you take it back out as it should, it makes the verse that much more simple to understand. And those of you that have maybe an NIV or a newer translation, it doesn't even include that phrase in the verse. So let's for a moment take that verse out. Put it back in verse 4. And let's also take out the first two words, there is, because that's not in the Greek either. That's an English translation to help make sense of the verse. But if you take out there is, and you take out that other phrase that doesn't belong, here's what it says. Very simply, therefore, now, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Period. That's it. What a wonderful verse we have just begun. Chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, now, 
Paul says. Not before, but now. Why is that? Why is it that before we were condemned, we were guilty? You know, that's what that word condemnation means. It means not only are we guilty, but it also means we are under the sentence, under the execution of judgment for that guilt. The Bible teaches us that we are sinners, and the penalty for the sin is eternal death and hellfire. That's condemnation. But now Paul says, therefore, now there is no condemnation. Well, what happened? Why were we condemned before, but not now? What's happened in between? I'll tell you, Jesus Christ has come. And he's given his life for us. He died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And now all those who believe in him, the Bible says they are in Christ. Therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul knew this very personally. Paul, Paul was so smart. He knew the Bible. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the law. He memorized most of the Old Testament. He was very religious. He lived in his traditions and all of his rules and regulations. He knew all about religion. But it wasn't until Paul was riding on his way to Damascus and Jesus appeared to him. Then Paul said, Lord, what do you want me to do? It was at that moment that Paul was a saved man. Not in his religion, not in all his Bible memorization, but when he met Jesus Christ, Paul could then say, now, not before, but now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Again, that word means not only the sentence of judgment, but the execution of that judgment. We are no longer under condemnation. Praise God for that. Do you know what we have? What it means to be in Christ is what it meant for Noah to be in the ark. You know the story I'm talking about? When God looked upon the earth and he said, every intent of man's heart is nothing but evil. And the whole world is filled with violence. They have rejected my spirit. And now I will judge them. And I will pour out my wrath upon all flesh and destroy them in flood waters. But to Noah, he said to Noah, build an ark and prepare it. And after many years had gone by, the ark was prepared. God had brought the animals to Noah to put on the ark. And then God said, Noah, you and all your household, come into the ark. And Noah just believed. He didn't ask any questions. He didn't throw up a challenge. He just did what God said. He walked into the ark, and the Bible says that it was God who shut them in. Noah went in the ark with his family, and God shut them in. And when the fountains of the deep broke open, and the rains of the heavens came down, God flooded the whole world, and every living thing outside the ark died in those judgment waters. But Noah, Noah was not touched by that wrath. Noah was not under the condemnation of God. Why? Because he was in the ark. That's it. Not because he did anything else deserving of anything, but simply he was in the ark and God shut him in. And what it meant for Noah to be in the ark, saved from condemnation, is what it means for us to be in Christ and we are saved from the condemnation of God. Praise the Lord. Now you might say, well, yes, I know the story and I understand that. And God said to Noah, come into the ark. I get that. And, and I can picture Noah just simply saying, okay. And step by step, he walked into an ark. Like, I get that. But how do we go into Christ? Do we walk somewhere? Do we actually go inside of something? I see Noah going in the ark. How do I find myself 
in Christ? The answer is one word, faith. It is by faith and faith alone. It means that we believe that Jesus is the Savior and we trust in him to save us. And by that faith, God shuts us in Christ and we are saved from condemnation. Do you know what religious people do? In fact, if Noah was a religious man, a man of rules and regulations and following the, the, the made-up traditions of men, do you know what Noah would have done if he was a religious man? When God said, Noah, come into the ark, you and all your family, Noah would have said, uh, I don't know, God. I hear you. I know what you're saying, but instead, let's try this. I'm going to take eight spikes and I'm going to drive them into the side of the ark. And then me and my wife and my three sons and their three wives, we're all going to hold on for dear life. And we think, God, we're pretty sure we are strong enough. We can hold on, God. We can do it. How long would it have been until they fell into the waters and perished? Or the religious person would have said, God, I don't know about going in that ark. How about we just wade the waters for a while? I mean, I don't know how long the flood is going to be, and I know it may be turbulent, but maybe with my own strength and my skill, I'm a pretty good swimmer, I can wade through the waters long enough to survive this. You know those flood waters were on the earth for months and months? How long can someone wade in the water, in the deep oceans, until they struggle and fall and sink? And yet that's what religious people think they can do. Nonsense, foolishness. God says, come into the ark. Come by faith and I will shut you in and you will be saved from condemnation. Now I believe Satan, he does his greatest damage by convincing you, Christian, by convincing you that you are still under the guilt of condemnation. And Satan will convince you that you are too much of a failure, that you're not enough, that you don't pray enough, you don't trust enough, your faith is not enough, you don't do enough, you're not enough. And eventually he will convince you after all of that that you are unwanted by God. Maybe he used to like you, but no longer. And now you are unloved by God. Brothers and sisters, it is at that moment of temptation that you need to learn to stand on what God has said and declare it. And you can say to the devil, get behind me, Satan, because according to God, I am in Christ. And therefore, now there is no condemnation for me. None. Get behind me, Satan. Oh, if we could learn to stand and trust in what God says. Have you put your trust in Jesus? Are you saved from the judgment that is coming? Do you know these words? There is no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus. To all of you, whoever you are, God still calls today. Come into the ark. Come and believe. You and all your family, come. Indeed, we have an ark that is greater than what Noah had. Our ark is stronger than what Noah had. We have the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is able to save all who come to God through him. And I promise you this, there is room for you. There is room for all of you and your families. Whoever wills to come may come and be saved in Christ. Amen? Young people who got baptized yesterday, amen? Amen. There is no condemnation 
in Christ. Number two, there is no desolation. No desolation. Verse 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. No desolation. Do you know what it means, desolation, or to be desolate? It means to be abandoned, alone, hopeless, to sink into despair, to be depressed, to be overcome with grief and sorrow. There is no desolation for those who are in Christ. There is a new law that is at work in every believer. It's called the law of the spirit of life. And this law, Paul says, has made me free from the law of sin that leads to judgment, condemnation, and death. Though I was a guilty sinner, condemned to hell, I now believe in Jesus Christ. And because of that, the Spirit of God indwells me and He lifts me up higher and higher. He lifts me above the depths of despair and destruction and desolation. Once again, looking at Noah, for those who are outside the ark, they may have fought hard, but eventually they sank into those waters of condemnation. Why didn't Noah sink? I mean, isn't that the law? Isn't there a law that says if you're in the deepest ocean, you can try to stay above waters, but there's a law that says you will run out of strength. You will run out of energy, energy, and you will succumb to those waters and you will sink and you will drown and you will die. Why didn't Noah fall into that law? Because there was another law, the law that lifted him up. No matter how high the floodwaters got, the ark was always above those waters. Because in the law of that ark, they were always lifted above despair, condemnation, and destruction. And in the same way, it is the Holy Spirit in you that lifts you up above despair. Higher and higher you will go. Now, how does the Holy Spirit do this? We're going to go through these as quickly as I can, but I, want to, I don't want to go too fast. How does the Holy Spirit help us from sinking into despair? Why is it that those who are indwelled by the Spirit of God, why don't they ever experience desolation, abandonment, and despair, and loneliness? Why? I'll give you four reasons. Okay? If you're taking notes, write these down. Reason number one. What does the Holy Spirit do for us? Number one, He empowers us to live righteously. He empowers us. Between verses 3 and 11, Paul talks about living and walking according to the Spirit as opposed to living and walking according to the flesh. Now in these verses, Paul explains to us that every person in the world, there's two kinds of people. You are either still in your sinful nature, that crooked nature, and in the core of who you are, you are a sinner. That's what you are. That's all you are. A sinner condemned. And what you are at the center is what dictates how you think. Your thoughts come from what you are inside. And if you're crooked in your nature, then your mind will be filled with sin, with pride and selfishness. It'll be filled with lust and passions. And then eventually, your thoughts will give fruit to what you do. What you think is how you will behave. For those who walk according to the flesh, sin reigns within, and it corrupts the mind, and we behave sinfully. But Paul says those 
who live according to the Spirit, the Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in your innermost being. And the Holy Spirit is changing your nature. You're becoming a new creation in Christ Jesus. And it's the Holy Spirit working in you that begins to change your mind and wash it brand new. And you begin to think ways of holiness and ways of righteousness. You begin to think, how can I obey the Lord Jesus today? And you know what the Holy Spirit will use for you to fill your mind with such thoughts? He will use the Bible. Because the Bible says that the Bible washes your mind. It clears all that junk that you're so used to thinking about and it fills your mind with the things of God. And so now the Spirit is in you, fashioning your mind and eventually giving fruits of righteousness and holiness. This is what Paul says happens to us. Now what God doesn't do is say, okay, I mean, do your best. I mean, try to think good thoughts and then try to get the work done. No, God doesn't leave you abandoned to do all this on your own. You have the Holy Spirit who empowers you. Verse 11 says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In other words, the strength and the power to be able to live righteously before God doesn't come from you. It comes from the Holy Spirit who's working in you. And what the Holy Spirit does, that power, Paul says it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That same power. Yes, one day it will raise you from the dead as well. But that power is in you now. Right now. This is why Paul can say, I can do all things through Christ who is my strength. The Holy Spirit will empower you to live obediently. The Bible says it's God who works in you so that you will both will and do what he pleases. The Holy Spirit empowers you. Secondly, the Holy Spirit reminds us of our new relationship to God. What is that new relationship? Look at verse 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit reminds us now that we are in Christ, we are in fact the children of God. And the Holy Spirit also teaches us in times of distress, in times of discouragement, in times of trial and trouble, he teaches us to cry out, Abba, Father. Do you know when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he knew the cross was before him, Judas was on his way to betray him. He knew everything that was about to come. And with all that distress in the heart of Christ, Mark says that Jesus went into the garden and there with God he fell down and he cried out, Abba, Father. Do you know that it's Jesus who brings us into that same intimate relationship that he has had from all eternity past with the Father? Now we have the same relationship with God. Do you know to say Abba isn't just Father. To translate that today in English, it's like when your child calls you Daddy or Dad. Like my kids, they all call me Daddy. That's what Abba means. And I believe the Holy Spirit in times of trouble, He wants our first instinct to be, Dad, I need you. Dad, help me. Just like my kids, especially Rachel who's away in America, every once in a while when she needs help, I see one word and it just says, Daddy. Anytime she's in trouble, Daddy. 
and she knows I will respond immediately. What do you need? Sometimes if I'm not able to respond because I don't see the message, she'll then call my wife. My wife will pick up the phone. My daughter's first words, Mom, where's Daddy? <laughs> because what she needs, Daddy's there to solve for her. And I love that relationship I have with my kids. How much more does God love to hear you say, Dad, Father, I need you. Father, help me. God loves you. And the Holy Spirit teaches us we have this relationship with him. Number three, the Holy Spirit also stirs up what Paul calls our earnest expectation for Christ's return. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What's Paul talking about? And when is Paul talking about? When the glory is finally revealed in us, when will that happen? And when Paul mentions in this chapter this great expectation or this earnest expectation, what is he talking about? Well, all throughout the New Testament, every time Paul mentions our earnest expectation, he's talking about the fact that Jesus is coming back again. And we are waiting and watching and we are excited and we are asking, Lord Jesus, come. Come today and take us home. Paul calls that moment the blessed hope of the church. Now, do you know that when the Lord comes to rapture the church and to resurrect the saints, we call that the rapture, the Bible teaches that in a moment, at the blink of an eye, these bodies that we wear right now, these bodies that become weak and sick, we go through pain and weeping and discomforts of life, at that day, in that moment, in the twinkling of the eye, God will change your mortal body into an immortal body. He will take off corruption and put on incorruption and give you a brand new glorified body. And when we see Jesus, the Bible also says we will be like him and he will glorify us. And do you know that Paul says in Romans, not only is the Christian waiting for this moment, but all of creation is waiting with bated breath for the children of God to be revealed in all its glory. Yes, this world, our earth, creation, this earth that is filled with death and disease and destruction. And man thinks right now that we can solve the problem with money and politics. You won't solve the problem. The problem is sin, and this world is dying because of it. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, sin didn't just corrupt mankind. It corrupted the entire earth, all of creation. And so Paul says that all of creation is waiting for the moment when finally Jesus will take his people and glorify them. And when he does that, he takes us into heaven. And according to the Bible, seven years later, Jesus comes back again to rule and to reign upon the earth for a thousand years. Now at the rapture, Jesus comes for his saints. But at the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he comes to rule on the earth, he's coming with his saints, you and me. And then Jesus, the King, will restore all of creation. And so whether it's the Christian or creation itself, we are waiting with great anticipation for the moment that Jesus comes again. And so Paul says, whatever you're going through today, whatever suffering there is, and we all understand suffering, the Holy Spirit has a way of lifting your eyes and remembering He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Lift up your eyes. The Lord is coming. And fourthly, how does the Holy Spirit help us? He helps us by interceding for us. He prays for us. 
Verse 26, likewise the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Holy Spirit prays for you. How many of us Christians, if we're honest, we will, we will admit we don't pray like we should. We don't pray as long as we know we should. We don't pray as often as we know we should. We don't even say the right kinds of things when we pray. And how many times are we praying about something and what we are praying for is completely outside of what God's will is? Sometimes our minds are unfruitful with what God wants to do, and so we end up praying however we think is right. Our prayer is often filled with selfishness. It's filled with what we want in life. We are so weak when it comes to prayer. That's why God has given you the Holy Spirit. According to the Bible, the Holy Spirit prays for you with groanings that cannot be uttered. He groans for you. And the Bible says that when he prays for you, he prays the perfect will of God because he knows what God's doing in your life. He knows you today and he knows where he's taking you. And he knows how to pray perfectly for you, for every need that you have, even the needs that you don't even know that you have right now. The Holy Spirit knows it and he's constantly praying for you. What a comfort it is to us, us who don't even know how to pray like we should, that we have a helper in our prayer and he always intercedes for you. Now, Paul doesn't mention speaking in tongues here, but when Paul wrote these words, he was a spirit-filled man. He did pray often in tongues, and I have to believe Paul is speaking in some ways about praying in tongues. Which, for those of you that have received the baptism, if you ever do pray, speak in tongues, because I believe the Spirit is teaching your spirit to pray the perfect will of God. Paul says your mind will not be fruitful. You're not going to know what you're saying. But God, through the Spirit, knows. And you pray the perfect will of God. And I don't know about you, but I want the perfect will of God in my life. The Holy Spirit helps us in that. So, we are never abandoned. And no, we are never left desolate. Because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. He empowers us for, our, for living. He reminds us of our relationship with Abba, Father. He stirs up that earnest expectation that Jesus is coming back, and he intercedes for us. Let's come to the last point. No condemnation, no desolation, and now no separation. And for this, I'm just going to read. I'll give some commentary, but I'm just going to read. I have no notes here. I'm just going to read. Let's look together first at the very next verses. Verse 28 to 30. Paul says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. How do we know everything will work together for good in our lives? How do we know that? Well, for one and one thing, because what Paul just said, that the Holy Spirit is praying for us. That's how we know that everything will work out for good in our life. But we also know it because we are the called of God. And God has a purpose now for your life. God's in charge of the purpose, and God will complete this purpose. This is how we know. No matter what we go through, God will make all things work together for good because his purpose will be established in your life. Now watch what Paul says. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. God foreknew you. What is foreknowledge? What does it mean that God foreknows? It means that God is eternal. And God knows everything about everything. God sees everything all at once. And God knows everything all at once. Now we can't do that because we are limited and finite. We can learn about the past. We can know things right now. 
and we have no idea about tomorrow. What's going to happen tomorrow? We got to wait to get there because we are confined with time. But God is above time. He sees all things right now. Do you know God right now in eternity, he can see creation. He can see Jesus dying on the cross. He can see Jesus rising from the dead. And he can see Jesus coming back to take us home. He sees it and he knows it now. He doesn't have to wait in the future to know what's going to happen. He already knows. And God knows you and everything about you. Before you were born, God knew all your sins, all your failures, all the wrong decisions you have made. He also could see and know about that day when you would give your life to Jesus Christ. And God knows where you're going. God sees it all right now. And so now Paul says, speaking of you, not just anyone, but you. Not only did God foreknow you, brothers and sisters, but also God has predestined that you will be conformed into the image of Christ. Predestined means God is working out this plan in your life and he is the one to complete it. God wants to shape your life into the image of Jesus. And the Bible says that he that has begun this good work in you, he will complete it. He has destined you to be shaped into the image of Christ until you see him face to face. Do you know what this means? It means we are destined for glory. We are destined for heaven. Watch what Paul says now. Moreover, those who he predestined, he has predestined that you will be conformed into the image of Christ. And those he has predestined, he also called. Amen. I'm so glad God knows my name. And more than that, I'm so glad God called my name. When I was nine years old, he called my name and I came to Jesus. Do you remember when God called you? Maybe it was through a preacher preaching or a friend who gave a testimony to you or a schoolmate or a parent or a husband or a wife. However it happened, it was God who called you and invited you and said, come into this ark and I will shut you in. Moreover, not only did he call you, he also justified you. The moment you put your trust in Jesus, you are in the ark and no longer guilty in the sight of God. You are justified, made right, made holy. You are righteous in Christ. You have eternal life. You have been justified. And one more. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Wait a minute. I thought glorified is something he's going to do when Jesus comes back again. When glory will be revealed. But Paul is saying that this has already happened. How can that be? If our glorification doesn't happen until we see Jesus, how is it that he can say that now God has glorified us? Do you know why? Because the eternal God can see everything from beginning to end. And he can see Emily glorified in heaven. And he can see Frank glorified in heaven. He can see my sister Nicelle glorified in heaven. Lynn, he can see you right now glorified in heaven. According to God, it's done. It's finished. I have spoken. According to God, it's as good as done right now. You don't feel glorified. I understand that. Neither do I. Nevertheless, he has promised to do it. He will do it. His promise is sure. We will be glorified. And according to God, I've already done it. It's finished. Praise the Lord. 
Oh, let's keep going. Verse 31. What then shall we say? Paul says. What do we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And then Paul says in verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who will find you guilty? Who can condemn you? Paul says it is God who has justified you. Nobody can. Nobody can undo what God has done. Furthermore, who is he who condemns you? Who condemns you? Paul's answer, Jesus died for you. Furthermore, he also rose from the dead. And now he sits at the right hand of God and also making intercession for you. This is what Jesus has done for you. And now he's exalted on high. Paul's question is, who's above Jesus that can undo what Jesus has done? Who can break apart your salvation? Who can condemn you, rip you out of the ark, and throw you into flood waters? Paul's answer is, no one can. No one can. No one can overturn what God has done. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What about tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? All these things Paul knew very intimately. And Paul quotes the Bible that says we are killed all day long for the sake of the Lord. Verse 37, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because someone may be able to kill this body, but you cannot separate me from Jesus. You cannot. You never will be able to. No one can. And let's close with this. The last two verses. We're almost done. Verse 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us, not just me, Paul, but all of us. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. No separation. You might say, yeah, but what about death? Doesn't death separate me? No. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. Death cannot separate you from Jesus. It might separate you temporarily from your family and friends, but all death can do is usher you into the very presence of God. Paul sums up death with these two phrases. For the believer, it means absent from the body and present with the Lord. Death cannot separate you. What about life and all the things about life? Can anything in life separate us? Jesus said, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Nothing in life can separate you. What about angels? Can the powerful angels of heaven separate us? God says, I have appointed those angels to be ministers for you. They guard you and they protect you in this world. Well, what about the demons, the principalities, the powers of Satan? Can they separate us from God? God says, child, I clothe you with the full armor of God. From head to toe, you have a shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And in the day of battle against those demonic forces, I have called you to stand and to stand strong and you will be victorious because no demon, not even Satan, can separate you. What about things present and things to come? And what about all the ups and downs of life and all the changes I go through and everything that I have to bear and all that's waiting for me to come? Through it all, God is faithful. 
God is constant and he never changes. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there is nothing that can separate you from his faithfulness. Okay, well, what about height or depth? What about when I say like Paul, I am a wretched man and I am so low compared to God. Oh, he is so highly exalted and I'm so far down away from him. Oh, wretched man that I am. Can I be separated by that distance? Remember, Jesus came that very distance. He came all the way down from the heavenly places into this world to give his life for you. And when he died, he rose again. And when he rose again, he ascended to the highest heights of heaven. Jesus has spanned that great height and depth for you. And now he sits on the highest throne of heaven. And as long as Jesus lives, I am saved. And so are you. And nothing can separate me from Christ. What about any other created thing? Paul's saying, I don't know, what else you got? Anything? Anything under creation? Well, remember that it's God who's the creator. And he has set Jesus Christ over all creation. He is the king and he is the sovereign Lord. He is above all things. And Jesus says, you are in my hands. And no one, no one can snatch you away from me. Nothing, my friends, can separate us from the love of God. Amen? And then the chapter ends the same exact way it begins. In Christ. From beginning to end, we are in Christ. And God has shut you in. Shut you in. And in this place, we declare no condemnation, no desolation, no separation. I am his, he is mine. And there is nothing anyone can do about that. Praise God. Are you comforted today? Praise the Lord. Musicians, would you come? Thank you for bearing with me. I had a lot to say today. Romans chapter 8. I encourage you throughout this week, please go back into it. And every time you feel discouraged in life, every time you feel like you have failed yet again, every time Satan tempts you that God has just let you go because he's just tired of your life, the next time you think such things, go back to chapter 8 and say, God, wait a minute, wait a minute. No condemnation, no desolation, no separation. I'm in Christ. Amen. Let's stand together. Sister Gale, please lead us in worship.